0: Hi, I'm Gareth Evans. I'm the writer-director of The Raid. And uh, in this commentary, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the the sort of inception of this film and how I ended up being uh, a Welshman living out in Indonesia. So basically, when I was... uh, All throughout my life, I lived in Wales. And um, up until I was 27, I kind of... I'd always dreamt of being in the film industry, but not doing enough to push myself out there. I hadn't really done enough to get on people's radar in the UK. And uh, my wife was Indonesian-Japanese, and so... We were we were kind of like living in Wales for a while, and we hadn't really settled, and I hadn't done enough to get myself noticed. She was sort of not comfortable where we were either, and so she got me a directing gig doing a documentary out in Indonesia, and that documentary was about Silat. And um, all throughout my childhood, I've been obsessed with uh, martial arts films. I've been a big fan of you know uh, Bruce Lee and Jet Lee and Jackie Chan, and all throughout my childhood, I watched those films over and over again, and so uh. I'd had a love and affinity for martial arts as a genre, but I never ever thought that I'd end up making these films. And so when I ended up in Indonesia and seeing Silat, it was the first time I'd seen that martial arts discipline. So I'd, I'd been familiar with Kung Fu and Muay Thai and, and you know, Aikido and Karate and Judo, but never Silat. And the one thing I always loved about Silat was the fact that it had this sort of like, very sort of fluid style to it. It's got a, it's very adaptable to sort of, you know, uh, small tight spaces and then wide open spaces with multiple attackers. So um, when I ended up going out to Indonesia to do that documentary, it was my introduction to see that. And throughout the six months that I worked on that documentary, I got to meet uh, a lot of different masters of a lot of different schools in Indonesia, um, all of different styles and different backgrounds. And throughout the course of that, I learned all about the traditions and the cultures and the practices. But then luckily I met this guy, Iko. So he ended up being, he was actually a, a delivery guy for a phone company when I first met him. And so when I met him, I was at his master's house and his master is from a style of uh, Silat called Tiga Burantai, which is Batawi based in Jakarta. And so we went to the, the sort of the, the class. And when I when I saw Iko at first, when I met him, he didn't seem like anything that special. He was this unassuming guy, you know, nothing sort of, you know, too uh, incredible about him. But then once he did his practice session and put on like the Silat uniform and started practicing, he transformed. And in that transformation, and I couldn't, so I saw immediately that he had a sort of screen presence about him, and something which I felt was uh, you know, great for film and great for cinema. And so I ended up elbowing my wife and telling her, we gotta get this guy and we gotta make him a film star. And so, yeah, since then we've worked together on the last two films and this is The Raid, this is his second film. With The Raid, I wanted to kind of approach the film a little bit differently from our first movie, Maranto. In Maranto, we took a long time to sort of get to the action um, we, you know, we dwelled a lot on, you know, setting out the drama elements and the sort of uh, the, the the tradition and the culture. And I spent a long time kind of, you know, uh, getting all of that character stuff out of the way before we could actually get to the fight. The way the was structured, we didn't end up getting to our first proper fight scene for like 45 minutes, which was way, way, way too long for us to do. And so on this one, I knew I wanted to kind of come right out the bat and just go straight into the fight scenes and go straight into the action. So I didn't want to waste too much time doing that. So we had this streamlined introduction, and then we just go straight into the truck. And the purpose of that is to kind of just you know, jump right in and, and have this you know, uh, fast start to the film and, and you know, set the tone and set the atmosphere and then go, go all out then with the action and kind of have this relentless pace there. Uh, earlier we saw Iko um, doing sort of like preparation with uh, exercise and then prayer and you know, saying goodbye to his wife. And it was important to me to kind of have this moment in there where we're uh, showing his spiritual, mental and physical preparation before he goes out on this mission. Um, it was quite the, you know, without kind of being too political about it, there was a reason why we wanted to show that he was a Muslim. Um, because, you know, living out in Indonesia for four years and being there for that long time and, you know, knowing Iko and knowing all of the guys I've worked with, the religion to them, it's something that they carry in their heart and something that they kind of have in their everyday life. And that's the way I wanted to present it in this film. Not for it to be like a, a political tool. I didn't want it to be... You know, like in, in a lot of media, there's two different versions of it. You see Islam as a negative thing and you see Islam as a preaching thing. I wanted it to be an everyday thing. This is our hero. This is what it is. It's just part of his life, but it's not preaching to anyone. And I felt that that was an important uh, uh, element to the film and an element to his character as well. So this is our introduction to Tama, the boss of the building. Um, I knew I wanted to do something which would be a bit more proactive for the way he, we introduce him. Because uh, for most of the film, he's seen behind a desk giving instructions or giving orders. And this was the one moment where we got to see that, you know, he's willing to get his hands dirty too. And it was important to us to kind of have this character. Like usually in a gang film or a gangster movie, the boss is this guy in a sort of pristine suit, smoking a cigar and stuff like that. I didn't want that. So I wanted him in a vest with a sarong, eating noodles, and then shooting five people in the back of the head. Um, the benefit of this this role was the fact that we had Ray Sahatapi play the character to perfection. He's really great with uh, understanding that you know there was a lot of dark humor to the scene, and he played it per- pitch perfect. Then, so I'm very happy with Ray in this role as Tama. The uh, the idea originally wasn't supposed to be five people being shot. Uh, I'd written another scene where it was supposed to be five people uh, stood on top of a plank of wood in the atrium and they would also have nooses around their neck. And the original idea was to have them flipped off and then like one by one, they all fall down to the bottom. So it'd be like number one would fall and his feet would bounce just before he hits the ground, number two the same, number three the same, number four. And then number five would kind of drop down, but you know, the rope would be too slack and he'd hit the ground and you know, crumple into pieces. And the punchline was Tama saying to Mad Dog, that rope's still too long. And that was the original idea, but we didn't have the the budget or the capability to do that scene. So then uh, one afternoon, uh, my sick, feverish brain started coming up with different ideas that we could kind of create dark humor out of that situation. So we decided to do the the, the sort of the gunshot execution and then the, the bullets in the draw. And that kind of comes more from, you know, uh, the influence from Japanese cinema Siapa? that I have—I've always been a big fan of Japanese films, um, and especially the sort of you know the, the darker you know sort of black comedy elements that you get in films like by Takashi Kitano or Miike. So those are the sort of you know the, the main influence points for all of the sort of dark humour in this film.
1: I don't want to a single when we back. Let's clean
0: this shot coming up here soon is um, it was sort of like a tricky shot that we had to do, because we, we did this about maybe 13 to 14 times before we got it right. Because we start off, uh, start off on a, on a Pegasus crane, and then we had to come down. But the, the camera's actually handheld. It's on a fig rig. So I got my DOP sort of stretching out over the end of the crane. And then once we get to the ground here, you'll see a little tiny bump. And that's them unhooking him from the wire to keep him safe and now we're able to kind of come straight off that crane and uh, follow on entirely in one shot and you know, track back along with the conversation. It's one of those frustrating moments because of the setup as well. Like we couldn't actually monitor the shot uh, from, uh, from an external monitor. So I had to kind of just wait and pray and hope that you know, the shot went well. And so it was always a case of waiting until we finished the scene and then getting playback later on to make sure it was good.
1: Luas <laughs> juga dengan kesalahan. Mereka ini pemula. Okay.
0: So in the SWAT team we have like a number of we have a, we have a mix of people who are kind of experienced actors and then less experienced actors. So uh, Joe Tazim here that we see looking up at the building, he's actually a national judo champion for Indonesia and he's done like two three movies before this. Um, but this was like his first sort of like you know big role in a film for us. Um, he actually the way he got the role was he contacted me through Facebook, and uh, and said that he really he really loved Miranto and wanted to be in touch to kind of see if there was anything we were doing next. And uh, while I was looking at his profile page, there was this one photograph of him dressed in a sort of SWAT team uniform, and it was that that thing of I was looking for the face, looking for the the, the look of Jacka, the character he plays, and he fit it, and so. I tend to have like this thing where I, I rely a lot on gut instinct when it comes to casting, so I kind of pursued the idea of getting him in to come in and we did two auditions with him. The first audition we did was a fight audition where he came in and did some choreography with Iko and with Yayan and then the second audition then was purely drama based then and yeah, we got very lucky because he nailed both auditions and you know very you know happy with the work he's done on this film like he's he's uh proved himself, and hopefully now he can kind of go on to bigger and better things. But he's someone I definitely want to work with again at some point in the future. Also in the cast here is Verdi Solomon. Uh His father actually plays Ico's father at the start of the film as well. And they have like, quite a strong sort of acting family, actually, they're, they're, all, they're all performers. And uh, he's a great actor too. Um, unfortunately, he had this one monologue, which was in the beginning of the film when they're in the truck, that we had to cut for pacing issues. Um, but he's a he's a great actor as well, and, and yeah, again, it was such a great experience like working with all these guys. One of the things I really wanted to play around with is the idea of uh, shadows and, and light in this film. So we tend to do a lot with um, you know things emerging out of the darkness. Uh, later on, we have another scene where I'll come back to that where it's in the atrium. But for this one, I, I always, can I, we made sure in the grade that we could crush out the background here? so that those hands of the, the SWAT team really do come out from the shadows and we don't see any other detail except for the hands. And I was really happy with the way this, kind of, uh, this, this scene turned out. One of the things that we did to prepare the SWAT team for the, the shoot is that we sent them on a boot camp training session, and we sent them to a place called Kapaska, which is kind of like the Indonesian Navy SEALs. And we sent them there for about a week to 10 days, and then they did this uh, sort of extreme boot camp experience where they got to learn how to operate guns, how to you know use grenades, and specialist strategy, and you know uh, the tactics, and they did raid assimilations as well. And uh, it was sort of, it was, it was like twofold. I mean, one, we, we wanted to make sure that whenever the guys were uh, in the film that they felt like they knew how to handle the weapons. They felt like they, you know, belonged as part of this unit. But uh, further than that was to have this idea of creating a sense of like, you know, brotherhood between them that they could rely on each other, and uh, that was an important sort of, you know, chemistry building exercise as much as anything else as well. Uh, here we're going to introduce another one of the actors uh, playing Gofar is Young Darmawan, and he's actually from a comedy group called Project P. Uh, based in Bandung in Indonesia, and he's more known for doing like comedy sketches and you know, uh, songs as well. And so we, when we cast him in this film, it was kind of like a bit of a departure for him to kind of play a serious role. But um, there's moments later on where he has like a chance to kind of show a little bit of his comedy chops, and he kind of you know uh, hits those notes pitch perfect again. When we were cast in for this film, we knew we needed a lot of fighters. We needed a lot of extras. And um, what we did was actually, uh, before we went into production on this film, we spent about a year and a half trying to get finance in place to do a different film entirely called Brandal. And uh, we spent uh, about two or three months then doing a huge casting call for that film, where we kind of searched for fighters all over Indonesia. We ended up having about maybe two to 300 people come into our office, and we whittled that down to about 80 to 90 people that could actually perform, that could actually do the fighting that we'd in the film. Um, so then when it came to actually start working on this film, we knew that we kind of had that database of people, you know, with different body heights, different shape, and stuff of like that, that we could use for this movie then. I really actually want to point out that this guy in the film that who just got flipped onto the table, his name is Yandi, and he's one of the uh, main members of a stunt group that we used in this film called uh, Piranha Stunts. Uh, one of the other senior members is Eka, who plays Dagu as one of the SWAT team members. We get to see him uh, throw down his moves later on in the drugs lab scene. Uh, they they came to us. They worked with us on Moranto. They were sort of you know key fighters in that film as well. And we gave them a much bigger role on this one by having them work as the stunt coordinators for us on this film. Fuck. So earlier I told you how we kind of uh, struggled for like a year and a half to try and get Brando up off the ground. And um, what happened with that was we were, you know, for Brando we were working on the basis of having a much, much bigger sort of budget. It was a much larger film in terms of scope and scale. And we spent a a long time just, you know, in meetings with investors time and time again, you know, just being told no, no, no. And uh, the the crux it was that every time we go in to talk to them, they'd be willing to invest like X amount into the film. Only if it was the equivalent of 50% of that budget. But the problem was, every time we talked to them, it was only about 20 to 25% yeah, of what we needed for Brando. So that always kind of became the stumbling block that stopped us from doing that film. And so when it came to, uh, you know, after a year and a half of not doing anything and you'd be in the office and Eco starting to gather dust on our shelves, we decided we needed to do a second film with him and fast. So I came up with the idea to do The Raid then, which was like, which was our plan B, it was our backup project. Uh, and so then, yeah, that that became the thing whereby we could go back to those investors and say, you know, this is a much lower budget project. This is something we can do for, uh, you know, that 50 percent input. And so then it was a, a, literally a case of spending a year and a half trying to get that, that first film made, not being able to get the money up. And then all of a sudden, one afternoon later, we got the budget for the raid and we went straight into production. This scene was a little bit of a bone of contention when we were creating it because it's a obviously it's a very like harsh moment in the film. Uh, you know, killing a child in the film is always seen as a, like a very strong sort of no-no moment in any kind of kind of kind of movie. And what I wanted to do is to have this moment in there, but to sort of shoot it in a respectful way, so that when we actually see the impact of the gun uh, of the bullets, right, it's uh, it's soft focus. We don't actually see the detail of what happens to that kid. And so we hint at it and we kind of, uh, it was a a more of a restrained way of shooting the action. If you see later on, we kind of have a little less restraint when it comes to the rest of the violence, but that was one moment where I felt very strongly that we had to kind of shoot it and uh, show that kind of scene with a a little bit more like respect of the audience too. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the the locations we use actually. because. We looked and looked and looked everywhere throughout Jakarta in order to find a real building that we could use. Um, But our designs and our requirements were so specific that we were unable to kind of find a real building that we could use. So we ended up doing a lot of studio work. So um, all of the corridors like this stage, the atrium, you know, the Tama's office, uh, all of the rooms and the stairwells, they're all built in the studio. The only thing is actually real is the sort of the, the big staircase that they run up uh, earlier on in the film um, and the drugs lab. Uh, the only other part then, in terms of the exterior of the building, the real building was only four four stories high. And it was a very clean, nice little building with like offices inside it. So my online guy okay. then would sort of take that, use that template and add an extra 10 to, 4, 10 to 11 floors up and just change the entire facade so we made it look like this ominous, you know, building. We knew that the building would be like an important character in the film. And so we looked at different ways that we could kind of uh, keep it interesting on an aesthetic level. Not to kind of, uh, not to let the audience get bored about the idea of only going from corridor to stairwell, from room to room. So we worked hard to make sure that every time we were in one of these locations that there was a specific, quality to it, a specific set piece that kind of set that location aside from the rest of them then. And I'll come back to those later on as as the scenes unfold. So obviously there's a little bit of a backstory about the, the music in this film, because obviously we have two versions. Um, what happened was when we when we sold the rights to Sony back when we were in we were in the middle of production actually. Um, I was about two months into the shoot, and then we sent some footage across to the Cannes Film Market. And luckily, uh, Scott Shewan, who was working with Sony at the time, he picked up the film and you know, got on the phone with me while I was still on location and said, you know, we really want to release this film, um, but would you be open to having a, a new score done for the film, like with somebody off their label? And yeah, so we, like what happened is they hadn't heard the original yet, and we went ahead and continued to make our film, make our version using uh, our musicians, uh, Fajar and Ogi, And they are the guys actually that worked on the sound mix as well for the film alongside Bonar, Sandika and Jack. Um, and so, yeah, I was so locked in with those guys with the music that we did on that film, uh, on the first version of the film, sorry, that when it came time to sort of discuss it then with, uh, with Mike and Joe about their approach to doing the US version, I didn't want to give them, you know, specific notes. I didn't, when I spoke on the phone with Mike the first time, I didn't want to kind of tell him, oh, let's go in this direction. Here's your in point, here's your out point of all these different cues. Cause uh, I was so wrapped into that version that we'd done that it just felt like I'd only be giving them the same notes I gave my guys. So I kind of said to Mike and Joe, like you guys have some creative freedom to go off and do what you think is right to interpret the film the way you see fit. Um, and that phone call with him helped. It reassured me a lot because Mike told me then that his approach was going to be to kind of take it from more of his classically trained background. You know, not for it to be a bunch of songs which are kind of plastered on top of the film, but for it to actually be a score that aids the film. And when he was talking about the idea of bringing in Joe, whose work I was obviously a huge fan of, having you know loved the whole work that he did on Tron, um, yeah, it just made. It made sense then, it was the, the idea of being told that they were gonna put songs in there that would kind of sit in the background from time to time and just aid the scenes. And then moments where they were gonna uh, lift it up even higher and kind of make the music the forefront and drive the scene forward. That balance between the two and knowing that it was gonna be score based and talking about you know, references like John Carpenter films and the scores from the 80s and all these films that I loved, just, you know, the, all of the influences on this film. It, it reassured me to the point where I just had this, you know, just a full confidence in their ability then. And, and, Believe that what they were going to do was going to be right for the film. So now we're going to start to see uh, how we decided to kind of uh, create a scene where we could play around with one of the locations and sort of set it aside from the rest. The atrium was always going to be about uh, light and shadows, basically. And um, once we kind of hit the lights on this we knew that we were going to play around with that idea. I wanted to explore different concepts that I hadn't really seen done in films before. And so one of those is the idea of uh, when you look into the darkness, the more you look, the more detail you see, the, the more things kind of appear in the shadows. And once I kind of realized that I hadn't seen that in a film before, it, it became the sort of the driving force behind designing this scene then. And, and it was literally like one night, probably when I, was, when I was trying to go to sleep, trying to kind of get some sleep about like midnight or 1 a.m., and then suddenly I get this idea for these guys on two different levels of two different floors who can't quite see each other, there's not enough detail there, that they're, they're looking in the shadows, looking in the darkness. And then I realized that we could play around and heighten it and do something a little bit stylized, but something that made sense, that could kind of convey to the audience that uh, when that muzzle flash of the shotgun goes off, that it would light up the space. That in the blink of that eye these guys with the ak-47s were trained enough and knew enough to be able to pinpoint their targets and then take them out and that was something that uh developed over the course of a night so that probably kept me up to about 3 4 a.m then writing notes all night and that's how it goes sometimes so this shot then with tama speaking into the microphone like that was like a, a sort of a, a riff on like a, a lot of different influences that came into the film then when we were making the film uh, obviously, doing the films inside one location and the idea of them being hunted and being like you know uh, chased after by all these bad guys, uh, I watched a lot of films that were classics of that sort of uh, that sort of genre, that sort of style, and so uh, you know that initial re- that initial influence with the microphone shot was you know something that was you know, uh, came from like The Warriors by Walter Hill, um, but then throughout the course of pre-production and designing the film, writing the script. I would watch a lot of different films, so I'd be checking out Die Hard, uh, Escape from New York, um, Assault on Precinct Thirteen was a big influence. Uh, and what I kind of took from those films, like especially with uh, you know Die Hard, was the idea of how, how to create like these big, you know, bombastic spectacle scenes, these big action set pieces. But then uh, mixing that then with the sort of the, the more lower budget, the scale of like Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and figuring out ways that we could create this sense of uh, of danger and, and, you know, people coming at them from every corner of every room, but without having, you know, hundreds of extras at my disposal. And so the thing that I learned most from Assault on Precinct 13 was the use of sound and the use of building up tension and dread and, and trying to kind of uh, create this atmosphere of, of, you know, what's around every corner. And I think the moment that clicked for me was when uh, I realized early on in the scripting process that the concept was technically, Um, uh, a survival horror film. You know, on the surface level, people will kind of always see it as this, you know, as a martial arts action film. But for me, it was always, you know, a survival horror that just happened to have martial arts as the action discipline in it. And so once I kind of realized that, I was able to add a lot more detail in there and add a lot more um, sort of, you know, elements from different genres that don't normally exist in a martial arts film. Actually, I'm going to talk a little bit about this shot quickly while it's still on. So we wanted to do this slow-mo shot and we wanted it to feel like it was like a 1,000 frames per second with the the shotgun shell coming out of the the front and the the fire lighting up the the guy's face. But we didn't have the budget to have like an expensive camera to do that. So what we did was we just shot in 60 frames per second and just had the actor move slowly. So uh, he looked like an idiot and a dick for about 5 to 10 takes of the shot. But I told him, look, you're going to look like a fool. Just trust me because when we get it right, it'll look great and uh thankfully a combination of the the slow-mo and his acting mixed with the the great cg work by andy that that's worked with us on two films now uh makes that shot work completely then um i'll talk a little bit about the guns actually because we we didn't have uh real blank firing guns at all in this shoot uh we used airsoft blowback guns so nothing was coming out of the guns at all and it, it what what worked for us in terms of that was the idea that we could shoot and shoot and shoot and reset time would be immediate. Like there was no need for, to, to go through the whole sort of like the, the safety processes you'd go through if you were using blank firing guns and blank firing bullets. So um, it meant that we had a lot of CG elements also then. It was kind of post-production heavy in yeah. terms of that. And, but one of the things right. that we had to do, because this situation, this scene was in the darkness, was we had to have real light bounce around off the walls and bounce off the weapons as well. So we came up with a cheap, low-budget technique where we had um, our art department would use uh, welding guns to create a spark, and then we'd use diffusion sheets, and then we'd we'd, we'd have about three or four of those set up. So whenever we'd be ready for the gunfire, we'd count them down, like one, two, three, and then the guys would fire their guns, and then the other guys would be setting off the sparks, and it would create this... uh, this working environment that where my online guy could be able to kind of put in the muzzle flashes and the bullet shells later. So I should probably mention about uh, Donny Alamsha and Yayan Ruhian, uh who play Tama's right-hand man. Uh, Donny actually has played Iko's brother twice now in two films for us. Um, he played his brother in Marantau and in Marantau it was a much smaller role and like, he came to us after Marantau and said how like, he, he kind of re- regretted not being able to do any fighting and not being able to do any action in the first movie. And so when it came time to set up the raid and I, I, I knew I wanted him to play this role and he was hungry for it and he came in and, and uh, yeah, did a great job in this role. Uh, Yayan was actually, who plays Mad Dog, is one of the choreography team from Marantau and um, for him then in this film... Like, he, when we were setting up Baranto, actually, we we weren't initially going to cast him as Eric in that film. But uh, after practicing all the choreography with Ico for months on end and not still finding a person to play that role, my line producer, Anne, suggested that we should give him a try and give him an audition. And when he came in to do that audition, he actually nailed it. So he was just as good on the drama as he was with the, the fight in. And so then when it came to the raid, I knew I wanted to cast him again and, and give him a much more challenging role because Mad Dog is kind of... You know, In in, the, in Maranta, when we cast him as Eric, he had a redeemable quality, but in this one, he was just pure evil. And I think Yayan actually relished the opportunity to play a character that, that bad, that vicious. Thing. When I'm working on martial arts sequences, um, I shoot with a very detailed video storyboard. Uh, we work out every angle and every edit ahead of time. This is in like the first three months' worth of pre-production. But for all the gunplay stuff that we're seeing now, um, I shot this without a shot list at all. We didn't have any kind of storyboard. So the way we did it was we do a lot of uh, long takes where we could tell the actors, okay, you burst in through the door, you arrest that guy. Meanwhile, you guys go and pick up that sofa and you guys pick up the wardrobe, put it in front of the door. And we give them these longer takes so they could really get like an energy going and, and a real feel for the scene. And then i sort of orchestrate my two cameras then to kind of uh pick up different elements of that scene as we were going through it take by take by take uh the benefit i guess of being my own editor is the fact that whenever we're doing these shots i already know where the in and out points are for everything we do so i can kind of almost be able to conduct them and uh, and tell them come down low for the guys close up on his face as soon as they've arrested him go up to the the cupboard and and uh, yeah, that, that worked for us in this scene and it was a bit of a, 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 an experiment and we were a bit nervous, but after about a day or two, we kind of found a flow and uh, we were comfortable to kind of finish the scene off then without having the need to have a, a full detailed shot list. One of the decisions we made when it came to designing how we were going to shoot this film was that feeling that we wanted it to be almost semi-documentary in style. Um, so once we're sort of with that SWAT team, we follow them and discover everything with them. You know, we're over their shoulder. So whenever we're with them, it's got a much more handheld feel to it. So like this shot, we had to go through the hole. Uh, we, we, it was one of those things to make that transition work. We wanted to follow Eco as he jumps through. And um, the way we did that shot actually was, uh, we had uh, two camera guys and we had the one up on top of the top floor with the camera on a fig rig. And as Eco would drop down through the hole, he would kind of fall down with him and push his half of his body through the hole and twist the camera around Meanwhile, we got a second camera guy then down on, down on the bottom floor stood on a table waiting for the camera to come through so when it actually drops through, he takes hold of it and controls the camera and continues the movement so it was like a, it was a cool like low-budget DIY thing that we did in order to sort of um, yeah in order to achieve what we wanted to achieve with the sort of the camera movement and the style) So I'm actually really happy with the way this scene turned out. We have like a lot of, uh, of mayhem and chaos from with attacks coming from every possible place inside the room. But uh, one of the things I'm really happy with is how we kind of did the sound design in this with Fajar Nogi and work on ha- having this moment where the sound just drops. And the reason why we did this, this idea of like you know experiencing the, the, the deafness of uh, Bo's character when he gets hit in the ear, is that we wanted to have a little bit of respite for the audience because we have such a sort of relentless... A uh, gunfire scene, which has gone on for like about a minute or two, that I want there to be one moment where we kind of take a breath almost, and then go right back into it as soon as uh, Rama pulls out the gas canister. This idea, again, this is one of those like 2 a.m. trying to sleep and then suddenly something pops in my head. Um, so I was, uh, I was, I was starting to think about how I could kind of end the scene and not really knowing what I should do with it and. I wanted to kind of finish on an explosion. And um, in Indonesia, a lot of our ovens, we have these big gas canisters underneath. And so uh, maybe it was one of those very rare days when I was actually cooking for a change. And I saw that gas canister and thought like, that would make a good combustible device. And trying to figure out how we could kind of channel that out through a doorway. The idea of putting it in a refrigerator just seemed to make sense and seemed to be like a logical solution for it. when we discussed the idea of uh whether that would work like on a sort of like a realistic way, I spoke to our military advisor and said, "You know if I put a gas canister inside a refrigerator and then threw a flashbang grenade in there w- would that be enough would that would the charge of that be enough to create an explosion and uh, he told me, yes, so uh I guess that uh I've learned something by watching lots of violent movies in the eighties. One of the things that um, has been kind of said about this movie a lot is the idea that it's got a similar structure to that of a video game. And um, usually, like a lot of people, when they get told that, they take it as an offense. But for me, I actually take that as a huge compliment. Um, Because we did, we set it up like this. We set up the. You know, the villains to have this sort of almost, you know, they're the next step up, then the next stage up. Um, and Yandy here, the guy we saw earlier when he was uh, pulling the machete from under the table, we, we set him up to be this guy who's going to play a major part in in the, the action. But then to introduce, like, the new challenger, <laughs> we kind of kill him off by showing the machete gang. So the leader of the machete gang is played by a guy called Godfred, and he was found by... Uh, our casting girl on Brandal, Icha, and she, she found him on a, a, a trip outside of in, outside of Jakarta, and um, in his real life, he's actually an architect, and he's a really, really nice guy, but he just happens to be very capable of beating the shit out of people. So, yeah, he was a real great find for us, and, you know, like, same with Joe, the same with, you know, Yayan and Iko throughout my last two films. Like, sometimes you just stumble upon these people that seem like they were, you know, born to do this type of thing, born to be in films, but they just never had the chance before. One of the things we wanted to do um, was to have a logical reason why we get to the martial arts. So uh, for the first 30 minutes of the film, we kind of stick to a lot of gunplay action. And we do that on purpose, because like, I, I, I don't like, I knew the film was going to be a martial arts film, but I don't like seeing martial arts films where the guys have like an arsenal of weapons, but they choose to use their fists, they choose to use their feet. Um, this is a SWAT team that have gone into this dangerous building, so we couldn't have them realistically use any other weapons or, or, or hand-to-hand fighting until they'd run out of bullets, until they had no option left, until they had no choice left. And so this was one of those things where we had to kind of figure out like logistically how we could get rid of uh, their equipment step by step by step. So it was a case of, okay, we need to lose their guns. Then we need to lose their helmets and then we need to lose their gloves. And it was just finding these little moments throughout the film where we could do that. I'm gonna spoil something for you now. Um, When we were shooting this, this was very much sort of like our schedule was all over the place. And this was towards the end. And that guy being carried towards the door, that's not actually Pierre Gruno who played Wahyu. That's a stand in that we had then who came in just for that day. So, poor guy ended up being brought in, had his hair spray, sprayed grey by us, and then was just bundled across to a doorway. And that was it, that was his day. Like a lot of this when we shot low budget. Like, that last shot then with the guys climbing up through the, the hole in the floor, it, you know, I, I wasn't given the same kind of treatment as I was on Marantau. On Marantau, my producers, they kind of spoiled me a little bit, and it was one of those things where any time I wanted a piece of rigging or a piece of equipment, it was on standby. Every day of the shoot, I could have whatever I wanted to. On this one, it was like, okay, you got seven days total where you're allowed to have rigging, and you're not allowed to have more than one equipment on each of those days. So, like, even shots like that where we needed to be high up it, it 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 was one of those things where we discussed it and we we're like, well, we we don't want to spend all that money to get a crane for that type of shot or to get that little bit extra height. So it was literally just stand on a table, uh, handheld, and just you know just do do what we did when we were making independent films and and use all of those tricks and techniques that we had back then to figure out like how to kind of raise the production value on this film. So earlier I was talking about the idea of um, survival horror as the sort of central concept. And this is kind of one of those key moments where we started to inject horror elements into the film. Uh, the, the, the idea of him you know, tapping that machete on the tiles, this is, this is clearly sort of you know inspired by all the horror films I watched as a child growing up. And it's kind of one of those things where I kind of wanted to play on this whole idea of uh, like claustrophobia and the idea of uh, being stuck with nowhere to go, being stuck with no escape. And, um yeah, this is the the best way that we could kind of convey it then. This actually is one of those things that I use whenever people talk about the idea of making films as being uh this glamorous thing where you know you have like you know big stars in beautiful uh shooting locations, yeah, three men in the, in a dirty, danky toilet in the middle of a rundown building in jakarta it's not glamorous at all, and when you think that we also have lighting guys and then sound guys and then also like a camera inside that space. Yeah, it, it's it's not quite as you kind of imagine it. Initially, this was actually supposed to be a scene that we were gonna split up into like two or three sections. And we were gonna intercut it with the, the fight that comes up soon in the hallway. But um, after I kind of showed it to Todd Brown, Todd Brown's one of the exec producers of the film and runs Twitch Film website, like, he kind of gave me the advice. He said, you know what, the fight scene in the hallway, Play so much better as one entire fight. If we kept breaking it up and shifting gears and, you know, going back to that, you know, uh, more tension building stuff in the toilet, it would kill both scenes. And so, very rightly, like, he told me to kind of treat them as two separate scenes entirely and just to kind of come back to that toilet at the end of this fight. So when we design the fight scenes for uh, all of our films, what usually happens is that I'll give um, Iko and Yayan like a, an idea of the location, the props, and the sort of the general setup of a scene. And then uh, they'll kind of figure out the sort of the technic stu- technical stuff then. The, the, they have to kind of fight their way out of those situations. So when it comes to the script, the detail that we have in the script, is saying that, you know, okay, so Eco's character has a stick and a knife, those are his weapons. He also has Bowo sort of clinging to his shoulder, then. So we have this moment where uh, at the start of the fight, at least he has to maintain Bowo's balance because Bal- Bowo can't actually stand on his feet anymore. Um, and then the script is, you know, you can't put all the sort of punches and kicks and hits into the detail of the script because no one's going to understand that when they read it except for you as the writer. And so I kind of keep it more to bullet points. So, you know, we have the moment where he puts Bowo down. We have the moment where he loses a stick, when he loses a knife. And like, that, that kind of informs the choreography then in terms of, OK, so we can explore different aspects of uh, fight design. <laughs> this would probably be my mother's favorite scene in the entire film. Uh, She has a major, major problem with anything to do with knife violence in movies. She can't stand knives in films. So as you can imagine, this shot coming up right here. Yeah, she loved that one. So you're welcome, mum. So uh, when we're designing these fight scenes, obviously, we need to kind of uh, be able to uh, have different elements from the art department than for like certain parts of the location that need to be protective for the stunt guys whenever they kind of come into contact with uh, walls or uh, doors or light fixtures. And you'll see one of the sort of best examples of that coming up. And what we do is we design like a miniature version of the set in pre-production, and we'll be able to map out where the choreography takes place. So at this point, we know exactly that this column and this wall needs to be cushioned, needs to be soft. Um, the way we did that obviously was we kind of uh, taped a bunch of blood bags to the side of the guy's head, and all of those tiles are kind of made out of foam, and the wood is made out of rubber. And so when we sort of smashed his head along down there, like the, the tiles crack, but then the blood from the blood bags, which are already strapped to his head, they are kind of leaving the mark on the tiles. So you feel like you're seeing something real, and, and combined with the sort of the sound effects, then it, it has exactly the desired effect. It seems to get a lot of laughs from the audience, so maybe a lot of you guys are uh, uh, you know, just as sick as me then outside. In this scene, we actually have a combination of different things. We have, Whenever we can do it, we tend to use like, practical blood as more often as possible, but uh, every now and then, we'll have like, uh, Andy, our online guy, sort of uh, aid us and do a lot of CG blood. So then that gunfire then, we had like, a real explosion for the, the, the door frame for when the, the, the door splinters, but then the blood that hits the wall, that was all CG. And um, Andy, our online guy, is really, really good at doing CG blood. Uh, he, his attention to detail is something that makes the, the blood work so well in this film that I feel, you know? The, the main reason why is because he pays attention to where the light sources are in all of the locations as well, so he looks for where those shadows are and where the light spots are, so that whenever that blood comes out, that it's reacting to the, this, this, the atmosphere on set not just the idea of just painting blood onto, onto an image then. And that, that level of detail is one of the reasons why we continue to work with Andy and, you know, look forward to working with him again and again. So now, like uh, I said earlier about that idea of going from set piece and then, you know, once we kind of end on one big set piece of the, like a sort of an explosive moment, uh, it was the idea of, Keeping that pace going, keeping the idea of uh, this relentless feeling of the the story and the plot always driving forward, and I had to almost immediately jump into this moment where we start to build tension again and we start to build suspense, and um, and so yeah, this is this is one of those scenes and where I'm kind of probably like most proud of how we kind of build the tension and the suspense in this moment. One of the things that I have is kind of like a not so much a ph- not so much a phobia, but you know certainly I feel very uncomfortable. About it is that idea of claustrophobia, and that idea of not just claustrophobia, but being trapped in a position where you cannot escape. So we did it on a sort of a smaller scale earlier with the toilet, but this is that same situation, but in a much more extreme way. When they get to hide inside the wall, and um, th- it's just that whole concept of. They literally have nowhere to go. If Godfred finds that door panel and opens that wall, they're stuck, they're dead. They can't escape from that. And that was something that kind of... uh, When I was coming up with the idea for this then, it just... Again, it was all... It's all coming from my love of the horror genre and my love of, like, thriller movies. And truth be told, like, one of the influences is that idea of when I was a kid, I was terrified of the music video for Thriller. And um, there's the moment when, you know, she's in that room and then all the zombies just come breaking in through the walls. And that stuck with me all the way throughout my childhood, and I, I hated it. So this was kind of like a riff on that, and it was that idea of, um, you know, they're, they're stuck. And as soon as, as soon as Godfred sort of, like, realizes that something's up with this wall, it sets that idea in the audience's mind, what, what the hell is going to happen next? And even though he doesn't pop open that panel, you could argue that what actually does happen is probably just as bad.
1: This
0: scene is really interesting. Um, this scene plays differently in different countries and different uh, audiences. In Indonesia, they, they laugh so much at the dialogue here when we do this scene because there's something about uh, Godfred's accent and his delivery that for some reason people in Indonesia just crack up at it. Whereas in, uh, when we screen it in the UK or in the US, then people tend to stay kind of serious about it. They see it as a genuine threat. But there's something, apparently, when it comes to the Indonesian audience, once he says uh, it's like it's seen as this, this humorous thing. So yeah, it's kind of weird to kind of see your film play completely differently with different audiences and the way they respond. But to be honest, from my side of things, doesn't matter which way the response is. If there's a response and people are enjoying it for whatever reason, then it works. So, yeah, laugh or take it seriously, go ahead. (laughs) This tends to get a reaction when we watch this this one tends to be one of those ones where people kind of respond big um when we played this film in the in festivals the first time we played it was actually in the toronto international film festival part of the midnight madness uh section and uh we finished post-production on this film literally one week before the screening and me and my producer at that point we were so uh we just so pessimistic about the film because all we could see were the problems. All we could see were the sort of, you know, the, the areas of picture breakup in the corner, or little bits of sound that dropped that we wish we could fix. And you know, uh, we had no expectations going in. And then when it came to that actual first screening, all we kind of hoped for was a couple of decent poster quotes. That was all we expected. That was that was the sort of height of our expectation on the film. And then um, when it started to play, like the Midnight Madness audience, they just took to it. And they just heightened the experience and just elevated the film to a point where we were, me and Ico and Joe were actually there. We went along for the, s- the screening and we were we were blown away. Like we were so overwhelmed by the experience of it. And yeah, ever since then, and to kind of be able to sit in and, and get the audience's reactions as they, you know, they ooh and ah and, and sort of vocalize how they feel during the film. It's the best feeling as a director. It's the best feeling in the world to kind of know that those little ideas and those little beats connect with an audience in some way. So this is probably the example, like I was talking to you earlier about uh, Young, the guy who plays uh, Gophar, of his sort of like comic timing. The situation is pretty grim, uh, the idea of having to kind of do this operation on the guy, but I I wanted to play it for like a certain, like a dark humor to it as well. And... um, so when it came to that idea of needing a knife, the the fact that he brings back a the knife is like it's the worst possible thing he could find, and it, and the way he plays it, he just plays it completely straight. When he asks him if a spoon or a chopsticks would work, whenever we were doing the rehearsals of this, like he just cracked me up every single time. And so it's kind of reassuring to know that that it works and with all audiences actually, because this has been one of those things where it's kind of worked universally across the board. People seem to find it funny, so so I'm glad that people share the same twisted sense of humor as me then. Actually, uh, maybe I can comment a little bit on the makeup. The makeup was done by Jerry. And for this entire sequence, uh, that's all practical. Um, so we had like, a, we had like a, a latex effect then where we could build up his stomach so we could, kinda, we could get that depth so that when Eco put that uh, button knife inside, that we could actually feel like it's gone really deep inside the guy's stomach. So, uh, yeah, thanks to Jerry for that amazing piece of effect. This scene in the elevator. This is actually it was sort another one of those like a bone of contention moments for for me. This was something I was considering cutting from the film uh, for a long time, and it wasn't until maybe the last final two or three days of uh, when, before we reached picture lock that we decided to keep it in and leave it in there. Um, in terms of plot importance, like yes, it kind of hints at you know the fact that there's something more to andy 's character and in terms of you know what his intentions are, but for me, when I watch this film with an audience now, I feel like it, tonally it doesn 't quite fit right yet we 've just had such a sort of strong visceral moment and such a strong extreme scene of violence before this, with the hallway fight the the you know the machete through the wall, and then the operation on uh, Bobo. that for me whenever I watch this. Every time it comes to that elevator, I feel like we still need another scene of respite. We still need another moment where we can breathe before we go back to the violence. So, I guess, in a way, the, the only thing I would change would be to kind of maybe take that scene out. But then I don't know how it would play without it. Maybe I'd miss it again. So, that's the problem of being a director. You always want to mess around with your films, you never are actually finished with them.
1: Kalaupun ada tempat yang enggak kena kamera, kamu tetap akan terjebak di sini. Enggak ada jalan buat kabur, enggak ada jalan keluar. Satu-satunya jalan keluar adalah jalan masuk kalian tadi ke sini.
0: We're about to reach um, one of the sort of more memorable stunts soon, um, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about that before we reach it. Uh, whenever we design our stunt work in the film, we always have the safety of our stunt guys at, in the in the forefront of our mind, obviously. So we always have like an ambulance crew on standby and we always have a paramedics team uh, with us every day of the shoot whenever we do these action sequences or stunt sequences. But when we come to design the stunts as well, we try to design them in a way that is like 100% safe for them to do. It's impossible to get 100%. but You you, you try to aspire to reach a point where uh, in camera it looks horribly dangerous, but when you're actually executing it, it's very safe. And um, this stunt coming up with the backbreaker on the wall is one of those ones where we tried our best to kind of make it as safe as possible, but just goes to show that no matter what, things can go wrong from time to time. So the way we did it, and I'll kind of give this explanation now before we get to it, is that we took the wall out from the atrium first. And when the guy gets flipped over, we're controlling him with a wire to make his path correct. So he has to land on a specific mark. So we took the wall out and put crash mats everywhere. And then when he gets flipped over and lands on the the crash mats, once we get that take locked, we we lock the position of the camera. And then we put the wall back in. Then we lift him up on a wire one meter up, drop him down onto his ass so that his his back can come down one side. Then we drop him on his back so his legs can come down the other. And then all three shots are sort of stitched together in order to create that effect of his flip over the wall and smashing his back in half. Uh, Where it went wrong is that when we did that first take of it, the guys pulling the wire, they pulled too hard. And so instead of coming down nicely on an angle or an arc, he ended up getting flipped right across the way. And instead of dropping, he went straight across and smashed the back of his head into the wall. And then the guys with the wire, they lost balance and dropped him. And so, yeah, he ended up falling and missing the crash mats and actually hit the concrete down on the ground below. Five meter drop. And everyone on the crew, their heart was in their mouths. And we were sort of, you know, we were freaking out. We thought something terrible had happened to him. And um, when the paramedics came in, they checked on him. And then 10 minutes later, he came to, And he was sort of, OK, let's go again. The usual sort of, you know, tough guy, stunt guy thing of, you know, uh, I can take this kind of pain. I can take this kind of punishment. So we kind of told him, you know, you're going to take a break. of a couple of days off and then come back to us four days later. And truthfully, he did. And he did the shot and he nailed it then. And so I want to give a shout out, because that guy, his name is uh, Ruli, and he's one of, the, 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 one of the, the toughest stunt guys I've ever seen. So uh, huge respect to him, and, and he worked really hard in this film. So um, we're coming up to the machete gang fight. And earlier I was talking about the idea that every location should have like, it's one sort of big set piece, which defines it from the others, so that we could keep the film like, you know, interesting to look at. So earlier in the atrium, we managed to have like the scene with the lights going out, and then also the, uh, the scene with the the, you know, the big stunt just then with the backbreaker. And then in the corridor earlier, we already had like a big fight scene where it was eco with the stick and the knife. And that's like the sort of, I guess that's kind of like the iconic scene of that location. And so for this one, when we were designing it, we knew we always wanted to kind of take the fight. You know, we were gonna start in the corridors, but we didn't want it to stay inside the same space because it's not visually as interesting. So we looked for a way that we could get the, the fight to start here, but then develop further and go into new locations. And so that informed us with the idea that we had to break one of the doors and, and actually be able to go inside one of the rooms. And it was kind of like a way for us to be able to you know change the color of the film and, and make sure that that room was designed in a way that uh, you know, it would be visually interesting and, and different from everything we'd seen prior to that. So we would, did a lot more like stronger reds and greens and blue colors inside that room then. Um, yeah, okay. Everyone tends to get a reaction to that kill. Um, I'm ashamed to say that it's my psychotic brain again that came up with that one. Uh, We worked on different things that we could come up with for how to kind of do that transition into the room. And once we realized that we were kicking someone through the door, we sort of had a brainwave where we were thinking we could have splinters, we could have part of the door left inside the frame and, and have it like these jagged splinters. And so then, yeah, it was just, Straightforward, jump backwards and pull a guy's neck onto it. But that, that whole moment, um, like we, we, we wanted to riff on different sort of martial arts heroes that we've kind of grown up watching. So uh, for, for that, it was the whole thing of, um, when you watch like a Bruce Lee movie and when Bruce Lee uh, kills a guy in his movies, like when he kills Ohara in End of the Dragon, uh, and he sort of leaps up and jumps down and crushes his rib cage, it's a sadistic move, and it's a sadistic scene, and it's all about like his character being overcome with the rage of the situation and being overcome by uh, the violence inside him. And when you watch that scene play out, like the look on Bruce Lee's face is one of pure anguish. It's, it's like he he looks distraught and you know disturbed by the fact that he went to that place, that he went to that dark side of his psyche. That was something that we riffed on on this, so that that moment when Iko jumps backwards and slams his neck onto the door, there's that brief moment where there's a look on his face. That he, he looks into the eyes of the person he's killed, and, like, it, it's very, like, it's very slight and it's played out very quickly, but it was the idea of, um, like, having that part of him acknowledge that what he's just done is, you know, for want of a better word, fucked up. Yeah! <laughs> That stunt took a long time to get. We spent about four days shooting this, and um, there was a lot. Of, obviously, because of the the fact that they're in tandem, it meant that we had a lot of wire work going on there to kind of do that stunt safely. Uh, like we built the wall onto that building as well. That was like we used a real building and just sort of like the art department designed an entire wall structure to go down. And the the ledge that they bounce off then was made out of soft rubber uh, and foam actually. So. Yeah again we did that as safely as possible as well for the for the stunts for the stunt design but it was I was a long time getting that shot to work right and it took a lot of tweaking in post and a lot of uh lot of rehearsals and a lot of shooting. Here, um for me it was really important to have a moment like this where we can kind of cut back to the wife and show you know just what what's at stake for Eko's character just what he could end up losing and the kind of Sort of regain that support of the audience to realize that you know this—it's more than just you know a string of action scenes. That there's there's some kind of like an emotional hook there as well. And what I've always been a fan of is that idea that you know uh, that he's not just a killing machine. And that's the one thing we wanted to bring into Eco as well. It's like when he's up against people who are not that skilled, yeah, he's in control of the situation. But just now when he was up against the Machete gang, they had a strength to them. And they could have him over, overpowered him as well. So it's kind of like he takes just as much as a beating as they take. And that's kind of important for us then. It makes the audience relate to him more. It makes them feel like a stronger affinity to him because he's not... He's not, you know, he's not this unreal superhero guy. That if anyone other than, you know, his brother came out of that room to grab him, he's dead, and that's the end of his story. And that was something that was kind of important for us then in the the sort of the design of his character and the design of how we present our heroes in our films then. So um, earlier I mentioned about Joe actually having a, a judo background. Um, and we're about to reach a scene soon where there's like a, where it's his opportunity to show off his martial arts skills when he fights against Mad Dog. Um, when Joe came in, we, once we knew that we were going to cast him, we started to look at the choreography we'd already designed for that scene. and started to look at different ways that we could approach it to sort of better suit his skill set. Because initially, you know, whenever we design, it's you know, it's with me, Iko, and Yai in designing the fight scene, so it tends to be a lot more sort of silat oriented. But then once we finally get to know who's going to be in the cast, then we can kind of uh readapt that choreography in order to sort of you know uh, accommodate their skill set. And so when it came to this fight, we wanted it to be a lot more um, like upper body heavy for 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 Joe's character. So we're playing with you know two guys who are very different styles very different body sizes uh you know joe would towers over mad dog but uh we wanted to kind of reflect that in the choreography so you know mad dog is the one that's coming in fast and close quarters and trying to sort of you know uh take him down you know in high attacks low attacks all over his body whereas you know joe's character is sort of so overwhelmed by the speed and the ferocity of the attacks that like, all he's capable to do for a long time is to kind of uh Use throws or pushes to kind of almost keep a distance between him and Mad Dog, and to try to kind of overpower him through uh, strength as opposed to technique.
1: Belum <laughs> saatnya. Ada yang keberatan. Semuanya siap. Jalan.
0: So this is the first time we're going to get to see Mad Dog do any kind of fighting. And um, we, I, I, at the start of the film, when we see him, maybe it's different for me because I know him and I know what he's capable of. But from an audience perspective, when they first see Mad Dog, he seems like this unassuming type. Like we don't really get this idea of him being such a badass. And so this was the time when we wanted to f- like fully introduce that side of his character. And so, uh, in this standoff, this sort of you know knife and gun standoff, we wanted to kind of have this this sort of very cold, very detached, very almost like purposefully slow build up to the fight to really set up this idea of uh what he's capable of and and what type of person he is um and later on, like when we come to the moment where he sets his gun aside like it wasn't designed in that way to be, you know, oh the bullshit thing of, well, let's set up another fight so he's going to unload his gun and then they just start fighting hand to hand. It's not about like a, a code of ethics for him. It's not. A, it's not about being respectful to Jacka. It's just about the fact that Mad Dog takes no pleasure from shooting someone in the face. He takes no pleasure from killing someone that way. The way he wants to kill someone is is vicious. It's violent, and he wants to feel like he's overpowered someone. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to just, you know, it's not enough to just have something mechanical in his hands that kind of uh, gives him that power. And so when he, uh, when he's unloading the gun and putting it aside, like he's talking about things like, you know, this is the pulse, and it's that sense that, you know, when he fights these guys, he wants to feel that moment when the person, he wants to know when that guy breathes his last breath. He wants to feel that moment when the pulse in him starts to die down and it's that sort of that that's what kind of makes him a much darker character than I've written before and what makes Yayan so great in it is that he totally committed to the role and he totally went in for it and you know I'll be honest he surprised me even the way he performed this is just it's so great but he it was such a surprise cuz I had no idea what he was going to bring to this role and how he was going to how he was going to perform it but he just he just played it right he kind of he didn't go pantomime with it he didn't go o- ott he just played it in a very sort of cool, cold, and calculated way. So there you go. You're gonna see. There's the first sort of one of our judo throws there, um, and we kind of like try to. Obviously, earlier I was saying we try to incorporate some of his uh, like skill set in terms of the choreography. So Yayan's going crazy at I him, and he's just trying to throw him and push him away and keep him at a distance then. One of the things we kind of wanted to incorporate as well were like uh, rough-looking throws. So this is one of them. It's like it's not a clean throw. It's a, kind of like a, it's, there's a there's a roughness to it and rawness to it. Like they not they never kind of get a, a proper grip on someone, and this, they, they just kind of like hurl bodies into objects. And that was one of the things I wanted to do to kind of like when we were designing the fight scenes, we knew we were gonna have these moments of like crisp choreography and like, you know, it was the complexity to it, but we wanted to mix it all in with these sort of like slightly rougher approaches as well, like where we have a bit more desperation at play as well. Um, And I guess I wanna kind of like say uh, one or two things then about, you know, screen fighters and their performance, which I think gets often overlooked when it comes to people that like uh, criticize the actors for these types of films. And it's like, it's really hard what they do anyway from like a purely on the choreography level in terms of the, the timing and the precision that's required for each of these shots to kind of be executed properly. But also it's, the, it's maintaining that emotional connection to the fight as well and maintaining a, a performance for, for shot for shot. Because you forget that like we shoot these, film, these fight scenes and it takes us like four days of doing these fight scenes. Every shot is about like, like one second, two second duration and we do like 30, sometimes 40 takes on each one. And then in the process of that, they have to maintain that sense of where their character is during that fight, because there's a shift throughout. There's you know it, there's a gradual loss of control throughout the fight, and a gradual growing of desperation in the fighters. And that's something that's really hard for them to kind of you know hold on to and maintain. So it's to me it, you know it's just as hard as any kind of dramatic performance to do this type of thing. And I'm really proud of uh, Joe and Yayan for this scene because I think they nailed it. Um, one of the things we wanted to do with this was to kind of make Joe's death count for something, to make it actually have an emotional resonance with the audience. And so we took out all the foley, we took out all the all the audio, all the live audio from the scene, and we just had it as just purely down to score or a drone. And what happened with that was, it was actually the way we came across it was was by accident. Um, when I was in with Fajar and Ogi and we were designing the sound mix for this scene, they wanted to play the music that they designed for the scene, and... Uh, when they were playing it back to me, they'd forgot to unmute the live action and the, the, the Foley channels. So it played just the drone. And as I was sat there watching it play out, they once the scene finished, they said, oh, sorry, we'll turn the, the live audio and the Foley back on. We made a mistake. And I said, no, 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 no. Go back and play it again. And then when they played it again, then I listened to it again with just the drones. And it just felt like it had this, it had a much stronger quality to it. It kind of, it, it sobered the film up almost. You know, it kind of gave us this one moment where it wasn't just about spectacle. It wasn't just about you know uh, blood being spilt or inventive ways to kill someone. It was it was giving you like an emotional connection, and so uh, we we kind of played it back another two or three times, and then we just all kind of came to like a unanimous decision, thinking it worked much better like this. It, it, it you know it, it was a it was a very sort of happy accident that we all stumbled across then. So um, here we got a scene where we start to kind of... um, We got like maybe a section here is about like maybe 10 or 12 minutes worth where there's finally like a respite from the action. It's it's more dialogue based and we kind of uh, uncover a little bit more plot and a little bit more character. Um, I was very cautious of the fact that when we were designing this film that it had to move at a very sort of breakneck pace. And um, once I kind of realized that it was all around one event, and sort of you know from dawn until about four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon, it's it's not a large period of time that we're dealing with. It's 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 not even a full day, and so once I kind of acknowledged that, it was it was one of those things where I felt like if we put too much plot and we put too many uh, details into the character arcs. It could overwhelm the film and it could kind of uh, create an imbalance between, you know, the spectacle that we were going for uh, you know, and sort of make it a little too uh, drama heavy or forced. So uh, we, we decided to kind of have this one little moment here where we could put a bit of breathing space and, you know, uh, develop the plot a little bit further and uncover a little bit more information about the brothers and their backstory and, you know, the reason why they haven't seen each other in such a long time. Uh, and just to kind of give the audience that little bit of an extra hook, then. So we'd already we'd already kind of established a sense of you know we want to follow Rama Eko's character uh, because of the fact that he's got this wife and, and and an expecting child waiting for him back at home. But then I wanted that to be a reason why we'd have an emotional hook to the brother too. So this was one of those uh, opportunities to kind of establish their relationship and to kind of uh, show why they cared about each other and. And, and why it was so important that Eco would bring him out of this building. then. Yeah. I tend to, um, when I'm writing these stories, I tend to try to kind of, uh, this might sound a bit cheeseball considering the sort of the over-the-top situation that these guys find themselves in, but i tend to kind of try to put in elements that i that are from my own life experience in these films not that i've been in a building like this but um more the idea of in Marantau, we had this moment where Iko was talking to his bro talking about his brother sorry in a, in like a concrete tube And he was talking about uh you know their childhood and you know growing up together and what they were like and that that came from you know me and my brother cuz i i'd moved to indonesia at that time and you know it was a big move to make and you know me and my brother have always been very very close and he's always been you know like a major part of my life and the support of me throughout and and, you know he's he's an older brother too so uh, I'm always kind of the the eco character then that that, that he becomes like my voice box in a way and um, yeah so in Maranta it was all about the idea of you know being away from family being away from home and that was something that I could bring to it from a personal level but in this one it was more about that idea of uh, knowing what it was like to be an expectant father. And whenever you go somewhere, you know, you have that thing where you want to make sure that no matter what, you're going to be there for that child, that you're going to, you know, there's, there's no greater fear than not being able to be there to, to kind of see your child be born into the world. There's no greater fear than not being able to see every day of their life, you know? So that was something that I could bring to it from a personal level then. You,
1: so
0: this scene, um, we actually decided to kind of play this like pretty uh, dry humor. Really, this is kind of like I guess in a way it's more like British humor, but it seems to go down well with the local audience too. They they get it, and um, in a large part that's down to uh, Ico and Donny's performance. They we played it when we gave them direction. Actually, um, we had them play it almost like. Uh, you know, almost like school kids in a way. That idea that they're both just as stubborn as each other and it's kind of played very sort of, you know, uh, uh, very dryly and very abruptly. and the, Even down to the way we sort of uh, positioned the camera, the composition of the camera was kind of just this sort of like, almost like a, like a double act between the two of them. Actually, I can point out, there's a little bit of CG work there that none of you guys will really r- no, realize. When Jacka gets dragged into this elevator, that elevator's not actually there. We just had like a blank green screen wall and my online guy kind of uh, put in the tiled wall and the elevator doors and the, you know, the animated everything then, and even down to the bloodstain on the floor. So all of that was done in post then with CG. So these are like another couple of little tricks that we did to kind of make, uh, this is like the L section corridor. And again, like we're trying to kind of make you feel like you're on different floors and you know, that there's something slightly different on a visual level that you can kind of find interesting in it. So, you know, this one was just simple. You know, we, we just put a little flickering light in there just to kind of give it a little bit of a different feel from the rest of the corridors. And uh, one of the design things that we did to kind of cheat and to make it much easier for us to kind of switch from floor to floor, you'll notice on the doors we actually write the numbers down in chalk. And the reason we did that was because all we'd have to do then is wipe off a number and then rewrite and put, like, fifth floor, sixth floor, seventh floor. And all we have to do is just change the number on the door. And it was very quick and very effective thing to do then. So I should talk a little bit about um, Pierre Grunaud, actually, who plays Wahyu, the corrupt cop in the film. Um, he came to us for, uh, for, the, for an audition and sort of like nailed the role and we did a little kind of uh, fight audition for him because we knew that he had a small uh, action scene later on in the film. Uh, now obviously Pierre is not going to be able to do the same kind of fighting as Ico and uh, as Eka do in that scene, but he gave it everything. Like He really, really did go for it with the fight scenes that he did get given. And even in the rehearsal when we showed him the choreography, he accidentally split the lip of one of the fighters that he was uh, fighting against. As he was supposed to slam the guy onto the table, he just he just slammed him right into it, and so the poor poor stunt guy came away from it with a with a split lip. Um, like Pierre came to me and said, like you know, what, please you know go a little bit easy with me on the choreography because he had like a an injured leg. He had a bad kneecap uh, from an old sports injury, I guess. And um, yeah. We, we, we gave him kind of uh, all of his choreography becomes sort of like more brute force stuff Then it's, it's sort of uh, more like a boxing style really with a little bit of Lat in there as well. But we'll touch on that later on when we get to the drug lab scene. I guess I should really give a shout out to Moti, my art designer of the film, because like we, we talked a little earlier about the idea of like building sets and uh, not being able to use a real building. And uh, yeah, like Moti, I've worked with him since Maranto and he's just such a great art designer. Uh, art designer for this film and and this location tama's office was the closest really to being happened. almost exactly the same as i would imagined it in my head uh the you know we we wanted to go a little bit retro with the sort of mm-hmm. the c c t v monitors using old old television sets and um yeah, they did such a great job on it it, and it it you know they didn't spend that much money, but they made it look really really cool um Uh, So, yeah, just coming into this set when they were finally finished with the design on it was kind of really exciting to see. And and when the guys were putting up the lights then it just came alive. And so I was really, really happy with the the work they did on it. So this is another one of those things where you kind of you hint to the audience. You kind of put these little hints in there where the audience know what's going to happen because... Like, we've seen him cut in an apple with a, a really, you know, it's not a kitchen knife. It's a, it's, it's a knife to, to fight someone with. Holy and then, you know, we've got him playing around with the idea of, you know, uh, he must have something in his hands. So you, you kind of, you put these little visual hints to the audience so that they, they get the idea that something's going to go wrong soon. But you kind of, uh, it's, it's that creating that level of expectation, You're waiting for that moment when that strike is going to come in. And uh, yeah, here it comes. Ah! So here's another example, then, of Jerry's fine work using, uh, making a sort of prosthetic hand for Donnie. Uh, he spent a long time in that and went to quite a lot of detail in order to get the the fingernails and the hair on the hand just right. And uh, when he first showed me that hand, um, maybe yeah. I'm just a wimp, but I just, I just kind of, I don't like seeing that kind of stuff. It just freaked me out, something so- shocking. So uh, the effect, actually, was a combination, then, of... Uh, the sort of the the, the sort of fake blood and the practical effects, but with some CG as well. Because we had a slight problem with the, the pressure of the blood inside the hand. So when the knife went down into it, it trapped the valve. So when the blood was supposed to come out, it was supposed to seep out gradually over the hand. But uh, as soon as the pressure was relieved off the knife and he went to grab the monitor, blood just sprayed everywhere across the table. So uh, again, one of those situations where I had to kind of turn to Andy, my online guy, and just give him another another shot to fix, and yeah, that list got pretty long by the end of the shoot then it was I think the almost every day there was a moment where we would say, "Oh, okay, uh we'll give that to andy uh, so poor, poor Andy ended up having a lot of stuff that he had to kind of fix up in the end of the
1: film dia.
0: So now we're kind of setting ourselves up, ready for the final stretch of the fight scenes of the film now, and um, we're about to reach like the like one of my favorite fights in the film was the, in the drugs lab, and uh, it, it was a great opportunity to be able to kind of show different fighting styles, but like you know, in all in one scene. So you got Eco is going to be using sealat then, and Eka comes from a taekwondo background, and then we have uh, Pierre Gruno who plays Wahyu doing more of a sort of rough street fight style then as well. I tend to, um, I, I'm the like offline editor for the film and uh, when it comes to the fight sequences, uh, often the, the the sort of more time consuming process is the fact that in between all of the shot setups when we're getting ready to do, go from one scene to the next, uh, I'm kind of taking wherever the footage has come in and been loaded in and start to edit the fight scene there and then. So we actually have the laptops positioned somewhere off camera. So every time you're watching this, like maybe like about five, 10 meters away in some part of that location, like we're sat there with the laptop and the monitors. And as soon as that shot is done and we locked on it, it's loaded in and we start to drop it into like a, like a final cut a timeline. Um, we do like vi- previous video stories, like I mentioned earlier, we do like these previous video storyboards, which is basically shot for shot, edit for edit, as we want it to appear in the, fi- in the final film. And it ends up becoming like about close to like maybe ninety-five percent the same as uh, what we do in the previs when it comes to this final version. Occasionally, like what we'll do is we'll shoot the opening of a fight scene for the first day, then we shoot the closing of a fight scene on day two. And then if we have like day three and day four, that's what we use to kind of bridge between those two uh, those those bookends of the scenes, so that we know for sure that no matter what even if we have to drop some choreography, we've got a beginning and an end to the scene then. So that's kind of our sort of security. That's our safety net then. Um, we got like a lot of sort of short shots, but here we have our first sort of big long moment. This was a camera, the camera went had to go 360. So there was no room really for us to kind of be able to monitor the situation. So throughout this entire take, because the cameras turn in more than 360 actually, uh, I had to hide somewhere in the corner and just listen to all those shouts going on from all the fighters until uh, my DOP would end up calling cut. And then finally, we kind of rush out and check playback. And we did about maybe 15 to 20 takes on that alone then just to kind of get that shot done. But uh, I think, like, yeah, one of our experiences when it comes to the action, we always do so many takes and it's really hard to get it exactly as we want it. Um, And I think one of the ways that we shoot fight scenes is that everything has to be like a jigsaw piece, you know, uh, it, the, the in and out points of every shot are so specific because of the design of the choreography and the design of the video storyboard that we, we will go through those takes to make sure that we get it and get it done right. So uh, there's a really uh, cool stomp to the face coming up soon and um, I'm gonna share with you like the, the cheat for how we can do this safely. So right now it looks really horrible because it feels like we're following the stamp down at the guy's face, but it's actually two shots that are cut together. So we start off on the top one where we point up at Dagu, and then we do a whip tilt down. And in the whip tilt down, we cut to another shot then, because there's, there's a blur in the movement and you can do a seamless edit. And so uh, the second part then is uh, we put Dagu's hand through a pair of trousers and then into the shoe so that we have more control on the stomp. So he's actually hitting the guy in the face with his hand, but it's inside the boot. And then we do that second shot, then we just continue like a tilt down to the face and then it's the impact. And so both shots kind of get chopped together and you feel like it's all one movement. You feel like it's all one uh, sort of aggressive stomp to the face, but it just hurts a little bit. It's It's not a full hit to the face. So now we're about to introduce the big final fight of the film. Um, This is the torture room fight and this was the longest one it took to kind of design and the most the most complex as well in terms of the choreography layout. Um, And to be honest like you know not to be too up myself but we feel the most proud about this scene this is like this is kind of we like we felt very strongly while we were shooting it and when we kind of finished the film that you know this is probably the best fight scene that we've ever done out of like both of our films so far. Um, it was an intense shoot. It was a really, really tough shoot to do. Uh, there's about six minutes worth of fighting and two minutes of drama wraparound. You know, usually for that, if we were working on the basis of like a, like a, sort of like a Hong Kong schedule, maybe we'd get given about 15 to 20 days to shoot that. But we had eight and the guys were working. Like we would, we would fight. They were fighting 14 hours a day, six consecutive days in a row. Now the the analogy that I preferred is that if you think about it this way If you go to the gym for one hour on a day And then the next day you feel like shit and you can't move an inch Imagine fighting for 14 hours in that one day And then doing it again the next day again the next day Again again and again and again and again uh, Meanwhile you've got some white guy in a chair telling you it's no good And you have to go again So yeah that's 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 the level of commitment and the dedication the guys have Okay I'm going to give you a quick spoiler now This is going to ruin the scene Watch the fan in the background it changes direction. Okay, so basically, what happened was we we had a fan built in, but the motor was too fast, and it kind of distracted with the background. So for every single shot in this scene, whenever you see that fan turning, it's an art guy tapping it with his finger to kind of keep the keep the fan moving at a, at a slower pace. And um, we we wound up Eki was our guy who was turning the fan at that point, and we gave him so much stick for the fact that he turned it the wrong way on that one moment. So that poor guy got given a lot of shit by the crew then, but um, it was all mild-hearted, light, light-hearted stuff, and we all loved him, really. He worked his ass off throughout the entire shoot, but he's just one of those guys where it's very easy to kind of make fun of him, and he'll take it seriously. So yeah, we gave him all sorts of hell on the shoot. So this is kind of the uh, epitome of Mad Dog being a complete badass that when he's faced up against these two guys, like, it's like he knew that Jacko wasn't enough of a challenge. So he's like, okay, a two-on-one fight. The the main, like, influence for this came from a Jackie Chan film in the 80s called Dragonlord. And, um, more along the lines of the idea that there's a two-on-one fight in that where the bad guy just owns them and he's in total control of the two fighters that he's faced against the entire way through. I think it was, um... Jackie Chan, uh, Jackie Chan and Maaz against uh, Wang Sik. And uh, Wang Sik is just beating them relentlessly and pounding them. And it just takes uh, the dedication of those two guys to kind of just keep slamming him and keep crutching him and keep breaking him until he can't move anymore. And, and that's one of the things I kind of wanted to reference with uh, this fight scene is that we have maybe like more complex choreography, but that same kind of tone, that same type of atmosphere with the scene there. So here's where we're going to reveal like the sort of you know, we've kind of hinted at it throughout the film, but this was like that moment where we can kind of reveal uh Wahoo's true colors really and, and reveal the link that he has with uh, with Tama, the fact that you know he's probably in a way worse than any of the bad guys inside the building. <laughs> So now we go back into the fight. We go back into the sort of the this is this is where the rest of the fight takes place now and we never cut away. And one of the things that we wanted to do when it came to design in this fight was to have this idea that, you know, we don't have moments where they suddenly stop fighting and look at each other and continue to fight again. Uh, it, I wanted it to feel like, you know, when you watch a real fight in a bar, it doesn't end until somebody's on the ground. It doesn't end until somebody's out cold on the floor. And that was one of the things we wanted to do with this and is to kind of have this, this relentless, aggressive fight that's just constantly going on. Now, of course, I mean, it's exaggerated because nobody can take this type of punishment uh, and last as long as it does. But you know they, we tried to keep the choreography grounded in a sense of reality, so we tried to make it so that all of the movements and all the sort of uh the sort of the attacks and the the, the exchanges they 're real moves and they're they 're things that you can kind of relate to as an audience. You can get this feeling that you know uh, if you studied the same martial arts discipline for long enough, you could do this too so we we tend to like eschew the idea of having like too many acrobatics involved we kind of keep everything uh you know as close to realistic as possible, so that it's more relatable then. Uh, we're really happy with some of these throws actually, some of these uh, like takedowns and the sort of like the, the flips. Uh, it took a while to kind of design them, but it came from a place of just like trying to figure out uh, like, you know, basic body movement and momentum and stuff. Like that. And this next one coming up, uh, it, came from, it came from me thinking about football and like the idea of when you uh, kick a ball through somebody's legs. And it was just that idea of if you kind of swung, your, if he lifted his body up and swung his legs through the, the gap, that that momentum would bring the person's body forward. And so, yeah, that, that, that was the inspiration for that kind of movement then. Uh, uh. think for this fight as well it was one of those ones where we knew it was gonna have to get like very sort of like violent and very aggressive and you know feel like it was you know relentless and just you know uh, charging at you um, you know it's it's mad dog's final big moment we've kind of built up to this a long time and so when it finally comes and it has to feel like we're sort of like satisfying the audience's hunger to kind of keep pushing it and keep going and just you know uh, create this feeling of the the fight. Uh, go in beyond the realms of how how long it could actually last, and so we start to kind of have moments like that with Eco falling off frame and showing the exhaustion in the fighters. Then, and so we we come to like a certain kind of symmetry almost then with um, Mad Dog with the idea of. Be just before he killed Jacker, he has that moment where he kind of, uh, kind of finds an, a sort of like not, not an inner a peace in a way, but he there's almost like a disappointment in his eyes. And it's like the 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 actual kill blow, the actual choke hold, like when he killed Jacker earlier, it was like a chore. It was just it was just the next step. It was just something to do to finish off the fight. But for him, in his mind, the fight is over here, and so the, it's that idea of like going over to kill off uh, Ram, and it's just it's just that next step. And so that was the kind of thing, we wanted to kind of bring that symmetry back into it so there's a similar feeling from uh, the previous fight, to kind of get the audience to feel like, holy shit, that Rama's gonna be in trouble. What I tend to love about this moment here uh, is that the audience normally, when you have a moment like that happen in the film, the audience are gonna be uh, expecting it to be, that's it, that's the end of the fight. But for us, like, it's not enough. We can't kill off Mad Dog that easily yet. It can't just be that he gets stabbed in the neck and dies. So he actually continues to fight way longer than he probably should. And the idea was to kind of take it to that extreme and to really push it, not just to kind of get the audience to kind of see it as being a little bit, like, over the top and a bit ridiculous. But um, the idea of, you know, Mad Dog is in this position where he's bleeding to death. And all he cares about now is still killing these guys. So he tries right up into the last drop that he could kind of like maybe like take them with him, and um, unfortunately, he doesn't get to do it. Now, that delightful little uh, moment there, uh, which is obviously another one of my mum's favourite scenes, actually comes from uh, a scene at the end of my first film, Footsteps. we did a similar sort of uh, effect where a guy had a knife in his throat and then he gets kind of like dragged across to the other side of his neck um, and it was just one of those things where we were trying to figure out what's, what 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 way can we kill a mad dog how can we take take him out and make it like this memorable big final moment and uh, I took a look back at footsteps and thought, "Oh, I can steal that because it 's mine so there was no no issue about using that again um, we actually we actually shot uh, a close-up of Mad Dog's face and his neck while that was happening. But uh, while we were doing our first take, immediately it felt too much. It felt too violent. It felt too graphic. And while I agree, like, the film is definitely violent, and that moment in particular, it kind of makes the audience have a very strong sort of visceral reaction to it, Uh, for me, we, we still kind of show a certain degree of restraint. The shot is a wide profile shot you don 't get to see that much detail it 's mostly what it puts in your mind as you 're watching it and like throughout the movie before this you know we 're dealing with moments of violence where i don 't know it 's kind of like i didn 't want to linger on things too much i didn 't want to feel like the the violence in the film is exploitative in any way, so I wanted it to be like we hit you hard in the stomach and then we run off so it 's like uh, Whenever we show these little outbursts of violence from shot to shot, we show something aggressive and you know uh, explicit, but not repulsive. And we cut to the next thing. We, kind of, we, we tee up the next shot. And, and that was something that was kind of important to the film. And I, I feel like it, it, just, it just teeters on that line. It, it's, it's right on the border before it gets too much, before it gets uh, like offensive in terms of the violence content. Then. <laughs> So this was actually probably one of the sort of most difficult scenes really in terms of scripting and in terms of uh, performance as well because we're asking them to give a lot of information here at the last last few minutes of the film which kind of you know like you know usually it's kind of that sort of annoying exposition dialogue but I wanted it to feel natural and I think one of the things that helped a lot was definitely uh, Ray and Pierre's performance here because it, it kind of, it, it, it does give across the information that we need in terms of the plot, but it, it never feels too forced. It never feels like you know he's just given this information for no reason whatsoever. So it feels like it's come from a place of aggression and a place of anger. And uh, Pierre's sort of you know uh, performance then, as he finally kind of like realizes his life is over with and he has no choice left. It, it fits the scene perfectly then, and I'm really happy with the work that they both did on this one. This was a tough shoot. This was like maybe at the end of like a 16 or 17 hour day, and then we still had to shoot this scene. So this was like we were working into like our 19th and 20th hour of the shoot. None of us had any, any energy left, but they had to kind of raise their game. They had to kind of find that uh, that that inspiration and that energy in order to kind of get through a scene like this tough then. always no question in my mind there was no way I was going to give Wahu an easy way out there was no way we were going to kill him off and so um, yeah, we, we kind of actually there's a reason why a lot of the things happen when he has that gun so when he kills that guy in the corridor and then there's two more people in the corridor it was so that we could get him to a position where he literally would have run out of bullets so assuming he has six in the chamber then he kills three people in the corridor he shoots Dagu uh, he shoots at uh, Rama and the, the the stairwell, and then he shoots Tama, and that's his final bullet. And so we actually, the, the number of people shot at and the number of bullets fired, we had to carefully think it through in order to, it, to make it sure that it it was and that and empty that uh, empty bullet, and empty gun at the, gun at the end, end of the thing. So now we're kind of setting up, and up and some characters that are actually gonna play an important role in the sequel to this film. The idea of introducing a character called Bunawar, who we we have no idea who he is yet, Um, he's actually going to play a major part in the the sequel now. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting to kind of drop these names at the end of the film without people having to actually know who they are, but feel like they have some kind of importance in the story of the film, and and they'll be explored in a lot more detail now in the the sequel. One of the things I really wanted to kind of uh, do with the ending of this film, was uh not follow the sort of the expected route of a film like this which is you know that the brother would go home with Rama would just you know that, that idea of in, in the perfect world that the brother would go home be a good guy again re- reconcile with the father and they'd all be having like supper together by the by the end of the night but um, for me it was always important that you know his character exists in this world because he belongs there because he feels like he's a part of it and it's something that he succeeds at and it's something he's good at. And so that became an important element then of, of uh, how the film was going to end then. And so, like again, we use that element of uh, uh, sort of a symmetry then to the earlier moment when he says about, that when, when he tells Rama to change his uniform and Rama says, no, this is who I am. And so this was another uh, moment then where we get to have Andy tell him then that, you know, that might be who you are, but this is who I am. As though they have to separate, they can't go on the same path together. There's a shot coming up here with um Iko's face uh as he walks out through the building, and we actually did a lot of uh, post production work on this because uh we were, we were running out of time on this, it was really hard to kind of get all this stuff done in the daylight because in Indonesia the, the clouds would form and break apart almost every five to ten minutes and so we were playing against the sunlight on, on a regular basis on this. And uh, the makeup effect on Ico's face, by the time we finally got this shot right, the makeup wasn't quite right. So Andy again, my CG guy, he had to make a CG cheekbone and a CG earlobe and then tidy up the effect as Ico turns and walks away from the film. My name is Gareth Evans and I was the right director of the raid. Just wanna thank you all for listening to the commentary and I hope that everything I've said has been informative and not too boring. So hopefully I'll get to see you when we do the next film Brandel the sequel to the Raid.
1: finger to the sky, cause I know where I'm going when I die. Yeah, cause even if I gotta live a life of crime, you got it, I'ma get it, never need it, I push it to the limit till it's time to say goodbye, that's fine. Cause I know just where I'm going when I die, die, die. Suicide music, nothing to fucking fool with. Flipping the and shooting out of Suzuki's, no excuse. We blast now, splatter your goose down, clapping like it's the end. I ruin your fucking movie, asking for passes, homie. I'm not a QB here to bang, throw your brains all over your bitch's boobies. Take me alive, never better to die free. I'm writing fuck the police inside of the blind letter, peace. the black, call the priest, telling me call heaven and send me a few seats. Sorry, so last minute, I'm bringing a few peeps. Body the lieutenant took a shot at the chief. She's guess a got. Got a little problem with authority. Tend to get a little bit gruesome and gory. Volume on 10, if I gotta get it in, always keep a pistol grip pump sitting on my lap like a Yorkie. You can take our lives, fill us up with lies. Some help, Care yourself, call me if you need some help. Care yourself, call me if you need some help.